Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Sean Alpe of Completions. He's also played with Father John Misty, Laura Stevenson, Whitney, and more. We talked about Stereo Lab's fifth album, Dots and Loops, and how to serve the song and learning how not to overplay. Completions released their debut album, I Needed Help, on September 23rd. Check it out wherever you stream music and pick up vinyl directly from the band. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we listen to records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. You don't want to miss out, so please subscribe. Also, please follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at spinningoutpod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment, and reviews definitely help. Okay, let's chat with Sean. Hey, Sean, how's it going? I'm doing great. Um, playing a show tomorrow uh, for the first time in a while, and really looking forward to that. Uh, playing, uh, I'm, I'm here in Portland, and we're playing a venue called Mississippi Studios, opening for mm-hmm. some friends uh, named Wild Pink, uh, based out of New York, yeah. and um, really looking forward to that. Yeah, I, uh, I was fortunate to play with them, I don't know how many years ago now, but um, it was at a house show, so to kind of like see where they've gone now um is really great to see uh also mississippi studios is a great place to play i've been to a show there once many years ago um but yeah i love that venue uh, so actually today we are talking about stereo lab their 1997 album dots and loops and it's their fifth album and that came out September 22nd, 1997 on Electro Records and Duophonic. And what I'll ask is, when was the first time you heard this album or this band? I was thinking about that earlier, and I couldn't quite pinpoint it, but it was sometime 2004 or 2005. So many years after it came out, I should mention that I didn't really become a fan of rock music per se until you know, well into college, which is to say 2001, 2002 for me. Before that, I was listening pretty exclusively to jazz and classical music. Like my first two records, like my first two CDs I ever owned were Relaxing with the Miles Davis Quintet and the Star Wars A New, Ho- A New Hope soundtrack. Uh, so that, oh, okay. that kind of lays the groundwork for you as to the kind of stuff I was listening to. I was an orchestra mm-hmm. nerd. I played a cello. I've been playing since I was 10 and started listening to that kind of music. It wasn't until college breakup heartbreak getting into like emo stuff and then years pass and starting going to shows and then starting to listen to like the next i don't know the next level down of 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 good indie music at the time Uh, but you know listening back and looking back on albums from many years ago and leaning on my friends whose musical tastes i trusted and um my friend josh turned me on to uh, the Chicago 90s scene, which is to say, okay. you know, the Sea and Cake and Tortoise. And, oh, here's this band that John McIntyre, who's in both the Sea and Cake and Tortoise, uh, produced uh, and worked with. And that was that was Stereolab. And and he produced Dots and Loops. And 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 so I just got really on board with um, all those bands. Um, I love the Sea and Cake. I love Tortoise. But 
Stereolab specifically spoke to me. And hearing this record for the first time, I I can't I can't say to you that I was like blown away the first time I heard it because there's not any like bangers or singles on this record. Yeah, yeah. But top to bottom, I found it incredibly easy to just listen all the way through and then go back to the top and then start listening again and then go back to the top and just put it on endless repeat. And for it to work in pretty much any context, you know, working on homework or journaling or party or driving, I just found myself able to put it on any time and it made sense for what I was doing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was meant to the long way of answering your question, which was <laughs> that this was many years ago that I first listened to it. I can't pinpoint exactly when I heard it, but like I said, 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. And I saw them for the first time in 2006 playing in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do have other questions about the earlier things you said, but since you saw them, um, I guess one of the things that I was reading about kind of said that they're kind of like more, they're different live. I guess if you could kind of explain like what the difference is in terms of recording um, versus like them in a live setting. Yeah. So I think that who they are as a live band and who they were as a recorded project was much more one and the same when they first started out in the very early 90s, late 80s even. It's like it's very much like kraut rock. It's very rock driven. It's very droney. It's very up, like high energy, and and they they that's more their character um, when they perform live, or at least when I saw them live that long ago. I've mm-hmm. seen them again since then, much more recently, and they've kind of dialed it back. I think some some of that's age, some of that is maturity, yeah. whatever. But when I saw them in '06 it was still very much like leaning forward. Every song was much faster in uh, live than it was on the recording. Um, obviously they're limited in their, in their um, range of instruments because it's just a group of people and they don't have like, they're not dragging a farfus organ with them everywhere, you know? So yeah. uh, they, you're having to make choices that are built more around a rock band with guitar, bass, drums, keyboard, vocals, um, as opposed to creating like a soundscape, which is true on a lot of their records, including dots and loops. Um, so it's yeah, it's more of a rock band situation live, um, which is what they okay. are at their core, um, and leaning more in the kraut rock direction of of like picking a lane and cruising on it for a while. And when when people usually say kraut rock, like what kind of bands like come to mind to you? Well, I mean, you've got Noi and you've got Khan and you've got like these bands from the 70s and 80s that are like classically kraut rock, right? I guess when I say that term, I'm not only thinking of them, but also bands that have come since then that have kind of borrowed pieces of that. Like you could argue that Stereolab is in that realm, but you could argue that Mm -hmm. other bands that you would never really call quote unquote kraut rock fall into that realm too. Like one of my other very favorite bands, the American Analog Set is really able to create a kind of a, a groove and a, and a drone that they just loop on. You could argue Sufjan Stevens leans in the Krautrock direction, at least in his earlier records like Michigan or Illinois. Like that's when I say Krautrock, that's kind of what I mean is that mm-hmm. like finding a rhythm, finding a groove, being willing to loop on it for a while and starting to tweak little bits and pieces as you go. And the song can be several minutes and it still works. Yeah, I guess I've heard people even refer to like Kraftwerk as Krautrock, and I'm like, 
it that I feel like it becomes one of those conversations where it's like, well, if you're before a thing that influenced the thing, are you the thing? <laughs> you yeah. know, then it's then it's it's kind of like a it's like if someone were to call the Stooges punk, and it's like, yeah, it's 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 not. But I, I guess it's like there wouldn't be without that. Yeah, I mean, so it's like with you know. with with Kraftwerk specifically, you can argue that they are not only Krautrock. But they are techno, they are experimental, they are house. Like you can, you can make all sorts of arguments about what they mm-hmm. are. And yes, prototypically, they are those pieces, they are those seeds. What I call Kraftwerk, Krautrock. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. a pretty. If you're using the definition loosely, you could definitely argue they were helping lay the groundwork for bands that leaned into that more specifically later. Yeah. And that, I mean, I feel like I, I want to dig into it later or we, we can now, but it's like even how the term post-rock has changed because I feel like when I was younger, closer to like when this was newer, uh, post-rock was really just closer to tortoise in my head. Like, but now it's sent, it basically got co-opted by things like ISIS or, you know, it got co-opted by Pelican and and it's like there is like a line- lineage from that place to there, but it almost exclusively just became that. And that was like a strange change. And I feel like if you say post-rock to someone that, I guess one of, well, someone like us, you know, that's involved in subculture, if they're a little younger, they have one version of it. Well, for sure. But I don't, I, I first of all, I agree with you completely. Like the word post-rock means very different things to very different people, to many different people. But what I would argue also is that that's true for most genres like when i say the word mm-hmm. emo to you what does that mean are we talking about the 90s are we talking about now are we talking in between like there have been several waves of what you might call emo when i say the word folk yeah. what does that mean like there's been so many waves of that so when when you say post-rock and the fact that it has had several waves and it means different things to different people like it doesn't inherently bother me that like a band like pelican might be grouped in the same category as like explosions in the sky and then stereo lab like it's kind of weird but it's like this all-encompassing term that people have conflated to mean arguably too many things but yeah people are just looking to describe the music they love and if, if you know it's not nefarious i think yeah i mean i i in the same regard i've called my own band punk lots of times and i feel like anyone listening to it is like i don't i don't hear that you know i i don't hear like the exploited and anything you do or whatever their references for it you know so yeah um i guess like even going back to like where you were talking about not not getting into rock music until a certain point when you were younger like how did you view rock music as a kid that's a great question. I don't have the answer to that. I just don't even think it was on my radar. Maybe I thought it was the um, the realm of cool kids. Like I, I can't over I can't over burnish my nerd credentials. Like in junior high, I'm wearing sweatpants. I'm playing Magic the Gathering. Like I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons. Like I'm I'm yeah. full on ten out of ten nerding it up. Right. So it felt like it was the it was not for me. Um, it was it was not not something to be enjoyed by me. And I would say that. As high school went on, I started to feel a little bit more like, well, what is it that's here for me? Maybe I could enjoy or borrow. I had a friend in particular who uh, is still one of my best friends who was very, very into Depeche Mode at the time. And he was going to go see them live in 1998, and he couldn't find anyone else to take with him. 
So my his plan Z was to bring me. And I went. That was my first concert. Uh, I was 16. Was Depeche Mode, and it, I wasn't going because I was a huge fan. I was going because it was a fun thing to do that my friend wanted me to go to. I would say that that started to plant the seeds for me of like, oh, like this, I could get into this, you know. But I don't think I really okay. started getting into pop rock music in earnest until a few years later. Was like classical music or jazz like a default music in your home? It. It very much wasn't. Um, my mom okay. wasn't really. Um, she she was into rock, uh, but more of like the soft rock kind of AM eighties radio kind of thing. Uh, as I was growing up, uh, her favorite artist was uh, Rod Stewart. If that gives you kind of like the the realm. Mm-hmm. And uh, when she passed, I got her record collection. It includes a bunch of Joni Mitchell, uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Um, you know, 60s and 70s folk was what she was into when she was a teenager and in her 20s. And my my yeah. dad was more into into harder rock stuff. Uh, you know, his his portion of the record collection I inherited. Um, every Moody Blues record, uh, every Beatles record, um, a bunch of Steppenwolf. Um, yeah, uh, that kind of realm of like more full on rock. He was not as much into folk. Uh, but by the time I was becoming a teenager, it didn't seem like either of them were really listening to that stuff very much at all. And they cert- we certainly didn't have a record player working in the house growing up. They were divorced, and, and neither of them had a record player. It wasn't until you know I approached thirty that I I got both halves of those record collection of that record collection that they had split up in the divorce that I um, combined again and and was able to enjoy at that point. But but yeah, to answer your question, growing up. I really didn't get exposed by my parents to to music really much at all. Because hmm. you know, I, I feel like when I was growing up, if I knew like a jazz kid, it felt like, uh, <laughs> hopefully this doesn't sound condescending, it felt like an affectation. Like they made a choice at some point that they were jazz kid instead of rock kid. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's that's a bold choice as like yeah. a teenager yeah. or a preteen to be that person in a world that, you know, doesn't that's not the default sure. you know so but it but it seems so much more innocent for you that it's like it's just where you arrive naturally to yourself like kind of going into jazz i really really still don't understand exactly how i got into playing the cello specifically but i started playing when i was 10 so by the time i became a teenager i was kind of like an orchestra nerd you know mm-hmm. um and and so that was the world that i lived in like hanging out with symphony yeah. kids and playing in quartets and playing in state orchestras and that kind of thing. And was it like the music that I was really listening to? Like even then, not really. And I'm not really into classical music now, even though I play an instrument that's a classical instrument, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, at the time it was kind of the people I hung out with. It was my community. It was the thing I was doing and it was music I enjoyed making, but it wasn't, I don't know. It wasn't, I wasn't sitting down at night to like listen through um, Mozart, you know, Okay. Yeah. Which I think isn't like a strange thing for kind of any child of a certain age. Like I think there hits a point where you just kind of like, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't know after like earlier time in my life, like what was I actually into? If I could kind of like think, you know, it's like pre before I was like, I am into punk. What did I truly like? And before that it was probably like ska that was on the radio or alt rock, but it still didn't feel like mine, you know? And so there's like a point where you're kind of like, something hits maybe part of its puberty and you're like this is mine 
you know and so before that i guess that kind of community you had it's like and with how engrossed i i know that these things take up like a lot of your time like being involved in orchestras and whatnot um yeah it's 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 almost like it's just a a part of which you live you know yeah Um, uh as 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 high school went along i was listening to you know late 90s pop rock radio and i remember getting really into like third eye blind and sugar ray and these bands that were just on they were just on you know it was it was music that was being played on total request live so i was a captive audience so i would be into the latest garbage single, you know, um, which mm-hmm. nothing wrong with any of these bands, but they weren't mine per se. It was just the music that was available to me. Now, what was I purchasing that was mine? And I'm not too ashamed to admit this. It was like, <laughs> it was one of those, one of those um, kind of background music cassette tapes you would buy it at Target. I can't even believe this was being made, but it was, it was like jazz music off in the distance with wolves howling over it. it was i was not purchasing this ironically i was listening to this going to sleep every night being like this is great great stuff you know like i was i wasn't winking at the audience i i swear to you it was like this is my jam right now and then that lasted for like a good year and a half yeah wow i do you you don't still have no i don't i really i wish i did like uh yeah i don't i feel like now at my point in life i would like i think i would just genuinely like to hear that like there's no that's i guess that's the hard part with like irony i feel like it's like i don't know anymore yeah (laughs) it's like there's so many things where it's just like where i'm just like on a default basis being like i'm going to listen to reo speedwagon again and it's like i don't know how i got here i feel like it might have been a joke when i was a kid because i can't imagine at my age like I, I mean, but it's like, I remember listening to REO Speedwagon a lot, or like one time I remember I was listening to, I don't know, like old country, like Johnny Horton, so not, not anything like REO Speedwagon. And my stepsister came in the room and was like, why are you listening to this? You know? And I was just like, I like it. And she was just like, are you making fun of someone? Like, you know, it's just like, I just, I guess I just want to hear like North to Alaska again. I don't know what to tell you. Like, you know, like being like 14 years old, listening to Johnny Horton, like what, like 1950s country, you know? Um, So yeah, it's like, I don't, I I guess I'm saying I, I understand that. Like, I don't know if it was irony at all. You know, you're like past it. It's, you know, so but I guess, like, looking back at, like, Stereo Lab, um, just, okay, so with this record, um, so the, I guess the record was, like, pretty well-received um, because it hit 19 on the UK albums chart and Billboard 200. So in comparison to the rest of their discography, where do you feel like this, where does this album lie amongst others? So one thing that I really prize in bands that I enjoy are is consistency is having a string of records they can glue together that's just like one to the next and 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 it's consistently good and I think a band like Yola Tango is is very much in that realm where they record to record they're just so damn consistent I think Stereolab is in that same realm they started out as I was saying earlier as like a more drony rock band but they began to mature into something that was more art pop, more jazz influenced. And, and the, 
I will say Dots and Loops was not the first record of Stereo Labs that really grabbed me. I think the first one that really grabbed me was Emperor Tomato Ketchup. And specifically the song Sybil's Reverie, which is the second song on that record, which starts with a, a string quartet kind of doing a loop. And I played the cello and here's a band using strings and that's interesting. And and that really that really grabbed me and then kind of really pulled me into that whole world of that record. And then Mars Audiac Quintet and then Dots and Loops. And and just that those those three records together, it's just like back to back to back. Like that's just pretty pretty impressive um, output for a band. So beyond yeah. beyond Dots and Loops, they start to get into um I, I don't know, like I still enjoy what came after that, but for me, Dots and Loops is kind of at the top of the the pantheon of of stereo lab output for me. Um, and it is not super like anything else they've ever put out. Like there's, it's obviously still signature stereo lab with the loops and the mm-hmm. two female vocals and like, and the, the political lyrics and, and, and all of that, but it's, it feels unto itself. And, and, and so in that regard, it's definitely of, of their albums, my favorite. And because of your background or just in general, um, do you feel like you tend to be like a, lyrics person like is that like a because for instance like my wife when she listens to something i almost feel like that's like the first thing she's hearing like to the point where it's it takes a lot and i'm like i'll be i'll say something silly like this is our song and she's like you know the song's about whatever you know, like, you know the song's about divorce and i'm like this is not our song you know like it's like i i don't pick up on it like i'm just kind of i get like hooked brain if i'm in, in anything i think some of that has to do with like kind of coming up on like metal or like punk, and it's just it's uh, voice sometimes can be just another instrument to me. Um, so where that kind of hits you with your background? Yeah. So as as a singer songwriter, and particularly as a narrative based singer songwriter, I, I prize being able to tell a story, writing a song, and definitely listening to other projects. If someone can tell me a good story, I'm in. When it comes to Stereo Lab like it sometimes feels like the lyrics are absolutely secondary. Like they're not secondary, but mm-hmm. like Letitia Sadler loves to, the, the lead singer loves to like cram in, especially on verses, just whatever word she wants to say and whatever scansion she can make work. It's always awkward feeling, but she makes it work somehow. So I don't want to say that I listen to stereo lab in spite of the lyrics or in spite of the delivery of the lyrics. Cause I love the flow and I love the interplay of the vocals and I love all of that. But it's very much not in the same realm at all of another body of music I like listening to, which is you're through verse, chorus, and bridge, you are taking me somewhere on a, on a lyrical journey and I'm there with you. That is not Stereo Lab's calling card at all. Um, they're definitely saying important things, uh, but it's not really, I wouldn't call it a narrative. It's, it's bits and pieces of things they want to say, and that's great and not at all in line with how I make music. Um, but something I still enjoy nonetheless. Yeah, because I know with like them having lyrics in English and French, um, if that's like you know, so I, I it felt like you know that's that's it's something I would have to kind of like sit down and kind of process mm-hmm. what they're doing. I mean, I feel like that's part of it. But like you were saying at the beginning, though, this really is something that uh, you can just kind of put on and do homework and it and. And I feel like it's like, I know I'm the one kind of pulling back from that where I feel like personally, if I ever say that, 
I feel like I then have to go, but not in a bad way. <laughs> You know? Sure. But it's like, but I, I think that that's to a huge credit of this music that it's so, it's so easy to digest. But if you go in and pick it apart, there's so many layers, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I, I don't even know how to do that. Like as a, as a, I guess I'll say musician myself, it's like, it feels like it's going to be one or the other, you know, like to be able to do both things is a feat. I feel like. Yeah, that point you make about, but not in a bad way, is almost like having to justify one's affinity for a given body of music. And maybe it's just that I'm getting older now, but I feel like I've slowly been able to chip away at that, the need to justify that. Like, I will unabashedly, like, I've been into, like, city pop, this, like, Japanese 80s and 90s kind of genre of music that it's all in Japanese, and it's all like, it sounds like Steely Dan, you know? Uh, and I'll unabashedly, like, uh, tell my friends to listen to this. And they're like, why are you listening to this? There's like, there's no English, there's no words. There's like, I mean, there's words, but it's like not telling a story. And like, it's definitely not, quote unquote, cool, you know? But I enjoy listening to it. And so that's good enough for me. Like, it's it's something that I like putting on. And, and I would say that I don't know if I'd put Stereo Lab in that same bucket. I would never call Stereo Lab uncool, but um, I would say that it is, it can be, when someone listens to it for the first time, or at least this particular record, that it can feel easy listening. And so therefore, easy listening somehow is is bad because it's not challenging. And if music isn't challenging in some way, uh, lyrically, sonically, or whatever, then it's not worth listening to. And I'm very much not in that realm at this point in my life. Like mm -hmm. I'll listen to what yeah. makes me feel, feel well. Yeah. Yeah. Like even when I was younger, like I feel like, uh, you know, like Brian Eno sometimes among friend groups would be like, uh, you know, I don't even know if I knew what it was, but even like uh, what, like nightscapes with the NPR thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I feel like that's almost sometimes used when you're younger as like a derogatory, sure. you know, it's like, oh, it's like nightscapesy kind of stuff. But then it's like how that kind of flips. And then I'm like, no, that's like what I want to listen to on like yeah. a normal basis. And then you're like, I feel like when I'm listening, if I'm, if I put on NPR at night, then I'm like, I feel like I'm jotting down who these bands are. It's not, you know, I'm like, oh, this is really good. Yeah. You know, like, but there was like a point where it was just, it was so like, a, you might as well just be furniture. You know, it feels yeah. like, you know, like if you go get a massage, yeah. but Stereo Lab does have that feeling where I feel like along with Brian, you know, or really more new agey type mm -hmm. stuff, you could slip it in you know, there, but it's, it is doing more. Oh, I, it's such a hard conversation. Cause it's like, but when I look at new age now, I'm not even saying that as a bad thing either <laughs> in certain content. I don't know enough about it. You know, that's where, where it's hard to say. Yeah. Like, like, like NPR's. NPR specifically is an interesting point because I've I have honestly found some of my favorite music uh, from the interstitials that they use in between NPR, like yeah. all things considered segments. Right. Where I remember distinctly being like, what is that? What is that melodic post rocky band that they're playing in between those segments? And it's a Japanese math rock band called Toe. And I got really into that band. And then it was because I was listening to NPR, you know, um, yeah. and, and and so they used it because it sounded nice and it was a nice segue in between two news articles. It wasn't trying to be challenging. It was trying to be smooth. And I really enjoyed that. And I, I said, give me more. I want more of that. Um, yeah. For, from, for, uh, on the point of Brian, Eno, yeah. Like 
uh, his you know music uh, series like music for airports music for films etc like I got really into that maybe 10 12 years ago and on, on the recommendation of friends and then was sharing it with other friends are like this what is this this is nothing right and and I found it very very interesting and going back to the point of looping like music for airports is just 20 30 minutes per part per song of just looping the same thing over and over again and yet it's incredibly interesting to me and that's an example of a record I've listened to also hundreds of times and, and don't mind listening to another several hundred times more yeah it's it gets so interesting to think of like sometimes how little is needed to be music like it's like as someone that's played in like you know bands like uh, that are essentially guitar based drums it's just that even if I haven't nailed it it's just when I'm sitting there thinking about like we could take this away and it would still like what could you take away and it still be the essence of this song you know like what is a song you know like is just a loop a loop is just a song yeah. you know like if it's just chirping and in a fact it could still be a song you know like or even like sometimes I think I've just watched like uh you know, kind of Motown musicians where they isolate just the vocal and they take out like any of the instrumentation. And it's like, how, <laughs> you know, but it still feels like it's the song, you know, like that's, that's like a, and I don't think it really completely applies to Stereo Lab unless you feel like it does, but it's like, what essence like makes a thing is such a, I guess, a philosophical question. Sure. You know? uh, when, when uh, the microphones, uh, Phil Elverum put out his, two of his more recent records, uh, A Crow Looked at Me and Now Only, about the death of his wife. He argued that those records are, quote-unquote, hardly music, that they're basically just grief in recorded form. And I, I disagree. I mean, it's music, and it's some of my favorite music that's ever been made. It's very hard to listen to because it's about death and about grief. But to his point, it is really just him telling you something and there happens to be a guitar or some piano or something underneath it that gives it the the trappings of of music but it really is just more of a medium for him to convey to you his emotion and in that regard yeah it's not music primarily it is it is um it's an emotion he's giving you yeah yeah like i remember when i was in uh college we i was in a film class and we watched like I know there's like a bunch in the series, but Koyasquatsi, I believe is how you pronounce it. It's like, and the music is Philip Glass. Uh, and so a lot of it is almost like, it felt like as, as like a young college student, like it was essentially a trance of essentially just saying the name of the title of the, the doc. It's not really a documentary. It's like a collage of images, you know? And then, so it's just like a, chant of just kind of and then it's like the idea with like philip glass it's like oh then that's music you know <laughs> just that kind of thing where you kind of like realize it and then i'm sitting there at a certain age and i'm like oh i guess i just listen to tangerine dream soundtracks now you know <laughs> <laughs> like, like kind of you know so but i don't know if that's like your journey was similar with having because i feel like i didn't I didn't come up in a way that jazz was in my household at all. That was just all something I discovered on my own. In a sense of like, I, I think I said like furniture <laughs> earlier. It's like when I heard jazz on, I felt like it was when NPR didn't have money in your town. <laughs> I, I thought that's what jazz was. Yeah. Because there was a point in my hometown 
I guess MP. I didn't realize that NPR was anything different than just jazz played. <laughs> and I realized years later that it's just because there was no funding in my hometown to run the station all the time. So they just played like smooth jazz, yeah. you know? So then it's like getting to a point where you're like, oh, there's like people that push boundaries in jazz, like things I know now inherently, but it was like, I, even with like orchestra music, it's like, how do you have a modern relationship with the thing that felt so long ago, you know? Yeah. To me. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question at all. <laughs> I, I will say that, you know, as as I went through college and after college, I started a musical project that was what I called an orchestral rock band, which was the merging of this thing, orchestra, orchestral leanings I'd had since being um, a preteen all the way up through college and post-college listening to rock music, indie rock, post-rock, that kind of thing, and merging them into an orchestral rock band that... Um, was playing to the two strengths of music that I felt like I could bring to the table. So it was string quartet, but also guitar, bass, drums, keyboard, vocals, etc. And and for me, that was like a merging of two different ideas that it's not the first time it's been done, obviously, but it felt for me like that was a unique expression I could make um, that that blended together my my twin interests at the time. Yeah, and so I guess if we're thinking of like the track listing of this album, do you feel like there is when you're listening to it, um, since so you've had more time to, um, do you feel like could you isolate like one song or like hey, you should listen to this song or do you feel like this is such? What I'm saying is when I was listening to it, I feel like I was like I find it hard to figure out what I would take out of this. Like it feels like such a complete body of work that I'm like what's the best song what's the worst song you know it just felt it almost felt like it could be it's not just one song it doesn't really hit you that way but I guess if you understand what I'm sure asking. yeah <clears throat> I mean they released the second track Miss Modular as the single as it were it was a single it's good it's a good song obviously I love the record but it's not really a single as I was saying earlier no no song on the record is a single if I had to choose my favorite track on the record, it's probably Rainbow Conversation. Um, it's, it's I think, the best distillation of what they're doing well on the record, which is combining a lot of different looped pieces and parts and then stitching it together with, um, you know, she, she, Letitia doesn't sing very often about love, but this song is a, is a, is a love song or a pining song. I'm looking for someone. And, and the strings are really lovely and, it just sounds great. And so it, that's my favorite song on the record. But I wouldn't be able to look you in the eye and be like, this is the song you got to listen to on this record um, for you to get into it. I would just say start at the top and play through it once. And if it doesn't talk to you, then you can listen to something else. But that's going to be the best way for you to consume a record like this. Yeah. And I was also going back to look at like my play counts of, of Stereo Lab records. And I just noticed how consistent the play was across top to bottom on this record, as opposed to some of their other ones where it's like, Oh, I jumped in on track two or track four or a song that I liked. Whereas I, I, what I noticed getting ready to talk to you was that I tried jumping in in the middle and realized I literally never had, like I'd never had jumped in on track four or whatever. I don't know the track mm -hmm. order really until I look at um, Spotify or iTunes. 
um, because I just have never really thought of this record that way. Um, it is, it is yeah. a complete body for me. Yeah. It feels even funny to be like, uh, cause I, when, so before you pick this, I was like, had I ever sat down and listened to stereo lab? And I think in a way, like I kept getting them mixed up with like stereophonic, mm-hmm. uh, which I think oddly enough, like, isn't I mean it's not the same at all, but I feel like it's like someone that likes Stereophonic might like Stereolab. Like I feel like they're but they're more on like the kind of dance techno ish kind of thing from my memory. Like for some reason they just kind of became one mm-hmm. band. Yeah. To me, yeah. Um, and I think with the little digging, it was like oh Stereolab has better art. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, but but basically I was like I've never listened to this. So when I put on the first track, I was like what am I in for? <laughs> you know, so it's like, but it's with some distance on it, having listened to this a bunch of times, it would be, it would feel disingenuous to be like, oh, that would be my least favorite track <laughs> because it's barely a track in the sense of like, it, it's setting up the whole thing. So to be like, that's my least favorite song. It's like, but you don't, it, it's, it's like saying the credits to a movie is your least favorite part. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just setting up the whole thing. That'll be the whole thing. Yeah. 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 And, and, and this record was one of the first, it was, it was, first of all, it was their first digital record that they had done. Yeah. And, um, you know, people in the press were saying, Oh, it's one of the first, you know, digital audio workstation records that had actually happened, you know, 15, 20 years before That's that. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. But it, I, you could argue it was one of the first indie DAW productions. You could argue that. Yeah. I don't know if even that's true, but I think maybe that's where people were coming from. Like, Oh, a band that isn't on a major label made a digital record and they didn't have to throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at it, that kind of thing. And, and the way in which we can use a digital audio workstation allows you to write a piece of a song and then loop it and, and move it around and, and create a collage with it. And when you listen to a record like this, you can really tell, you can, it, you can really hear that idea of like, they took a thing and they looped it. They didn't necessarily play it top to bottom live. Um, but then they did that and they made another piece and another piece and they moved it around and created something using the DAW as a musical instrument, which I think increasingly is an art that's lost on people making music now. It's just really like a means to an end. But because it was a novel, relatively novel thing, it you can you can sense how it influenced the choices they made from an arrangement perspective. And on the first track in particular, to your point, it is really just a looped idea. It doesn't really, it doesn't really go anywhere at all. Like there's maybe you could argue there an A and a B, but it's really just the same progression the whole time. Um, and, and, but I I love it because the soundscape for me really works. Like the pieces all come together in a way that I could, I could listen to that six minutes over and over and over again. Yeah. It has this kind of effect that I feel like people were doing, I actually probably a couple years later, but I remember there's a lot of albums in the early two thousands that were doing the thing like the, well, Queens of Stone Age did the turn the radio in, but I feel like a, you know, like people were using a radio effect. So I feel like it's like, it almost reminded me of that, even though this is a few years before, it's like, it's kind of getting you into the headspace of what people, what they'll be doing, which I think is still the same conceit with like even Queens of the Stone Age. It's like, let's kind of give you little glimpses of the world that we're going to set you in, you know? And I, you know, that's what I feel like the idea was, but it is interesting to think of like something being, I, th- I think like where they call it 
one of the earliest purely digital things. It's like potentially it's the one of the earliest done on Pro Tools. I I think was the only thing that seemed to kind of make sense, but I could, I didn't know like when Pro Tools started. But I I also found that kind of odd to think that this is the first or one of the first purely digital seemed a little odd but then maybe if we're just saying pro tools that could be more correct i guess yeah i mean Uh, in any case i think the most important bit is that it's one of the first records that was like really playing to digital recording strengths like it was leveraging that synergy leveraging that strength to make a better record people now we all record on digital as a matter of course i had the luxury and privilege of working at an analog studio called tiny telephone in san francisco for several years and had a chance to work with rock bands recording on analog reel to reel, right? And that medium is much more set up. It's much more playing to the strengths of a rock band with guitar, bass, drums, vocals, where you're trying to capture a live feeling. Dots and Loops by Stereolab is not at all trying to create a live feeling. It's trying to create a collage. It's trying to create art. Like it's creating something else. And they played to that strength and the DAW helped them create something better than they would have if they were on tape versus a rock band recording on digital. Like it's actually perhaps weighing you down or it's making you make worse choices as opposed to we're going to play a a good take top to bottom on analog because splicing things is really complicated and we're not going to be able to comp together five different takes easily. So let's bring our a game. So let's be a better rock band, right? Like, that's where yeah. that's when when I heard when I was reading about how people were saying Dots and Loops is one of the first digital records. That's that's the take. That's the angle I have on it is it was one of the first records, perhaps, that it really was like the medium was was burgeoning. It was helping. It was making better the music that the band was creating. Yeah, I feel like people are slowly getting away from this when i think of like rock bands but i still feel like so many people and probably myself included are so into the idea of like i want to capture who i am in this exact moment and not kind of letting these tools you know your doll kind of like it's it's like it's like if you're a drummer and you know or i don't know i'm a bass player so if it's like if if a computer can fix my little imperfections in a way like it feels like it feels silly that people are like i have to i have to meet these herculean kind of levels that essentially like session the best session musicians in the world like we get these ideas like where people are like oh this person did all their drums in one day without any overdubs yeah and then that's sort of a metric people put in their mind and then if you can't meet that I think I'm thinking of this because I'm in the middle of recording yeah. a record and it's, it's so like, but you don't have to, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like, and you know, I've had friends that are like, Oh, if it has, Oh, I don't want to hear that. That has fake drums, you know? And I feel like that's like waning, you know, but it's, it's interesting that people still hold that as like a metric, like, Oh, but I wish they were real drums. Oh, was that, you know, even like I've like years ago in like hip hop, you're like, are those, those aren't real drums. And I'm like, but that's not, that's not what they're trying to accomplish. You know, like that's not, that's not the goal here with Stereo Lab. Like why would you hold them to some standard that doesn't make well, sense? Well, I think that's the point. Like when you listen to a record like this, I don't think you're coming away from it being like, oh, that was a real performance. 
I think you're walking away from it more like, oh, that was a creation that I enjoyed listening to. It was uh, stitching things together. It was moving from one thing to the next in a way that felt nice. It wasn't, I wasn't walking away from it thinking like, oh, I really loved that like bass guitar performance. I might be thinking, I really like that bass guitar loop or that drum loop, but I wasn't thinking like, ah, oh, man, like I really just, that band was so tight. Like that's not what you're walking away from a record like this thinking. Now you might walk away from earlier Stereo Lab records thinking that because they very much were yeah. a live rock band in a recorded setting, but this one in particular, no. So to your point, recording now, yeah, like there is an expectation for, and this this starts to dovetail into a whole other conversation about authenticity <laughs> and what people are expecting as an experience out of listening to stuff and using something that feels real versus feels fake. Um, and how do you deliver an authentic experience to people? Um, what I would say is that use whatever tools are at your disposal as long as it feels like it's playing to the strengths of the music that's being made. Like if I'm using fake drums, for example, uh, I will make them sound fake on purpose. Like they are, I'm using an 808 or something. I'm using mm -hmm. something that is like, yep, that is somebody hit a button in something and it was, it was, it played through. It, it was on the recording as opposed to something that sounds like a real drum or it's a sample, but like, it doesn't really feel, it doesn't feel, um, um, real or it's kind of in an uncanny valley where it's like, oh, that sounds kind of real. It feels kind of real, but it's not really real. It was a sound replacement. I'd prefer to either stay on the side of completely real or completely fake and in the middle somewhere like fake strings that kind of sound mostly real but aren't real or like sound replaced drums like people have won plenty of Grammys making that kind of music. So I can't disparage it, but that's not the kind of music I personally want to make. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, what, what's interesting sometimes is like there was some, it's like, I can't remember what JJ Kale song it was because I've been obsessed with this idea of kind of like, the idea that like J.J. Kale, uh, basically Eric Clapton got really popular more than he was, uh, essentially from taking these J.J. Kale songs. There's like so many of them, and it's like, the, but listening to J.J. Kale and then kind of listening to the Eric Clapton version and just like, why do I like one versus the other if essentially they're the same thing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is this like obsession I have? Yeah, <laughs> recently. And then with one the JJ Kale song that I'm thinking of, uh, there were fake drums on a lot of the record because he just didn't have money to like pay a backing band, and this was like early seventies. Yeah. And it's like I had listened to it for however long I've listened to it, and I didn't know that until I read the mm. thing because I wasn't looking at it, looking for it. Yeah, I just assumed. I just kind of took the song for what it was, mm -hmm. and I didn't need. I did. I guess in that moment, I didn't even care about the Uncanny Valley because I just was like, "This is the thing that you're." Yeah, me. but I guess I would say for the from the early '70s, if you're hearing mm -hmm. fake drums at that point, you're hearing like something that is maybe it, like, to your ear it didn't sound artificial. But if we were to put it on, would I think it was a real a real drummer, or do you think I would be like, "Oh yeah, that's that's a drum loop." Um, I think. Well, it sounds you would probably know more more than me. I. I think it's just like I don't know why I did because when I noticed it I was like yeah for for sure yeah. that's a fake drum yeah. you know but I think it's like there's also sometimes too where even back in those days it's like somebody will get the tightest like po you know the possible tightest possible take they can especially with like kind of countryish kind of blues music 
um, on that scale. And, or what I thought, <laughs> I didn't realize it was a lo-fi record. Essentially, the record was recorded as a demo. Yeah. So I think in my head, I was like, just very tight drums. Because yeah. like, sometimes it's just, it's just the beat. They clean it up so much, yeah. you know, in modern music. And I think that's where I start thinking about it. Like, we clean up drums so much that it's like we've taken it back. It's funny when people complain about fake drums, but it feels like all music is on a grid when we're talking about rock music yeah. nowadays. Yeah. And then I'm like, then what are you criticizing? Essentially, you just created the thing that you said you wanted to not have. Yeah. So all that to say, I don't think there's like a wrong or right answer. It's just funny that like, we sometimes disparage one while, but we're still trying to get as close to the artificial thing as we can. Oh, for sure. And like, I'm a huge hypocrite. Let's be clear. Like the record I just put out definitely has pitch correction, time correction out the wazoo for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not like trying to create a, a an experience that was like not touched by, by artificial hands. Yeah. Like I just, no, I, I would never profess to do that. Um, I just mean to say like, commit to uh, a direction as opposed to like having having a band record a drum loop and then like replacing everything the drummer played with toms kick snare overheads and have it all be uh the performance but it's re totally sound replaced so it feels i don't know to me that that i often listen to that and be like oh that sounds um it sounds too artificial for me i would have preferred to have either heard a straight up drum machine or a straight up um, live recording but this thing in the middle is like making me feel it's making me feel anxiety to listen to yeah yeah and I, I think I had a producer recently was like you know when when those kind of things happen in records like I he was like people won't know why they don't like it a lot of times you know like we might have more <laughs> musical language to articulate it than a non-musician and then potentially they just like brains like don't like turn off mm -hmm. you know that's like and so i guess we're it's like you you're able to sort of like know why you don't like it but the still end result is you just don't yeah, yeah. well another thing i would say so, is that when it comes to a song having drums or not on it what would it mean to leave drums off like there's this idea when it comes to fake drums if we're using the word fake to there's an assumption that it has to be there. We had to have added drums to this song. What what would it have meant to leave drums off or to have been an acoustic song or a more stripped down version if it means it would have felt more authentic? Maybe it doesn't have the same energy, but if it feels right, if it feels good, then maybe don't add that. One of the many lessons that I learned working at that studio was knowing when to say no to a part, knowing when to leave it off, knowing when to say this sounds complete enough we don't need to keep gilding the lily with quadruple tracked guitars or quadruple tracked backing vocals or or what have you um and and going back to stereo lab you can absolutely hear many spots on the record where you could argue there is quote unquote too little going on like it's just a couple minutes of a couple drum loop things and and why wasn't it more why is this song 14 minutes long you know like well because that they decided that was good enough. They knew when to draw the line and say, this this is complete enough. We don't need another melodic line. We don't need another harmony here. And I've really tried to incorporate that in what I do. I think I still sometimes go over the line a little bit too much and add one thing too many, but I really try to challenge myself mm -hmm. and the people I work with 
who work on my stuff with me to pare it down, play one fewer hit in a drum pattern, simplify the bass groove, or don't play at all. Like I often find that it makes the song feel more authentic. Authentic's the wrong word. Uh, more complete by having not added something or having pared it down. And and I think yeah. again, this record is a great example of of knowing when to call it a day on a, on an arrangement. Yeah, I, I I struggle with that, like with playing bass sometimes, where it's like I feel like I've been I've been trying to sometimes okay <laughs> when I wrote more like in college and uh, if I've anything I've written. It's like that idea that you're like, I don't need to show in every single piece that I write in every paragraph that I like went to college, you know, it's like, I don't always need to be expressing, you know, sometimes it's like, and I remember when I started playing bass, it was like a conversation of like, I felt like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't good. I was new at it in a live setting. And it was like, if I play too much, I will show kind of how little I know and I think like when you get better it was like the idea I'm like but I feel confident that I can play less and but then also then then balancing that with am I just being lazy sure you know and that's that's where I'm I have a battle with myself where I'm like I want to do less Mm -hmm. but will I look lazy and then almost being like afraid of like people seeing my hands not doing much and then Mm -hmm. kind of the person in the audience Mm -hmm. or listening to the record Mm -hmm. being like he's not good yeah (laughs) you know like so it's like it's kind of like when you leave that space that space left is so terrifying I guess from a point well it's terrifying but it's terrifying for me not having enough confidence for sure because I think that's the thing I, I felt like I landed on it was like if you do little, do it with as much confidence as you can. I think, you know? I think and the, the, the most consolation I can offer you is realizing your fear completely, that there will always be a subset of people watching you play and being like, ah, he's not playing enough, not playing enough notes. Yeah. I need more notes. Yeah. You know, like you're, yeah. you're, there's always going to be someone in the audience who says that. And then there's going to be somebody else. If you were to be overplaying and be like, what's up with that noodle or why is he just going for it all the time? there's always going to be a, a critic, right? So what, coming back to what you want, what do you want? Like, or more importantly, yeah. what serves the song playing as a, as a cellist in other people's bands, touring a lot, recording a lot in studio, uh, you do what's called laying eggs, which is playing a bunch of whole notes on just the changes or double whole notes where like on the printed page, it's just like an egg, an egg, an egg, an egg. You're just laying eggs everywhere. You're not doing anything interesting. You're not taking a melodic line. You're just, hanging out on the root or the five or maybe the three if you're getting crazy in the cello that mm-hmm. maybe that often serves the song and so i am now willing to do that in a way that i wasn't before i listened to some of the arrangements that i've done for bands from like 10 15 years ago and i compare them to now and the thing i noticed the most is how much better i've become at staying out of the way of a vocal and not stepping on what the vocal is doing um, being willing to play much less or nothing at all when the vocal is moving and when they're both the vocal and the string is happening, that the string is absolutely subservient to the vocal. Uh, listening back to some of my earliest arrangements, they were much busier. And so the band I was working with would have to like make it so much quieter, 
make it quite enough that it's it worked in the mix underneath the vocal, which means it was hardly audible at all, as opposed to mm-hmm. simpler ideas, simpler motifs, simpler movements can be brought up because they're a piece of the puzzle. They're actually there. They're not just a sprinkling of salt on top. It's actually a, a, a part of the whole. And um, and so, yeah, I've, I've really, as I've grown older, been more willing to play less because it is in service of the material or the program material. Yeah. Do you, did you ever have a fear when, cause I feel like if I were in that position, like it's like you almost, I guess it's back to that writing thing where it's like, I have to show everyone that I know this big word, you know, I have to put in the word buttress. <laughs> like one time my band had yeah. a, uh, a review and we were like a fast punk band mm-hmm. and the person said uh, buttress and diatribe. And I'm like, no one that listens to my band potentially knows what that word is, but you just put it in. So I felt like I had to sit there with the decoder and figure out what the writer was saying, yeah. you know? And then it's like, it's like, I, it feels like you, you don't have to earn your degree every time you write a thing, you know? So it's, it's kind of hard as like a musician to get to a point where you're like, I don't have to show every Every note I make doesn't have to show people how good I am. Yeah. It's such such a hard thing. We're, we're, we're way far afield of Stereolab at this point, but I'll say, <laughs> I recently read Churchill's biography, and Churchill, obviously a master orator, he prided, prided himself on using simple language and specifically like, like English um, root words, not ones that were French in a root or romantic. It was like, you know, going back to old English and he would, he would use those words in his, in his war speeches, monosyllabic words that like harkened back to a simpler time and could be understood by the masses. And he of course understood every large $10 word under the sun, but elected did not use them because he didn't need to prove his intellect. He was trying to convey a meaning and that's really there's a really important difference there. I spent a long time as a songwriter conflating those and thinking I had to use I had to pop a bunch of wheelies in order lyrical <laughs> wheelies in order for yeah. my music to have meaning. That what I was saying that didn't have meaning by itself. I needed to pair that with something intellectual, and I would argue it made for pretty bad songs. And and so as this newest batch of material I released, definitely have been willing to pair that back and be like I'm telling the story of my feelings and I'm not going to try to like dump a $10 word in here just because it feels or sounds interesting um if it takes away from the 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 arc the the summary of the meaning uh let's distill down to something simple that conveys the emotion and just stick with that and let the let let it speak for for itself yeah and I guess like kind of getting back to something earlier you said still far away from stereo lab um and so i guess like when you kind of mention like being in orchestras i think a thing that i always project sometimes is this is basically what like if we were playing music together i would ask something as simple as i'd probably never actually ask this but i'd be like how do you feel playing like being so like like classically trained or whatever we want to say like you being in orchestras like, how does it feel for you to play with, uh, like, an idiot like me? You know, I wish I had a better way of saying that. You know, it's like, I, I'm kind of joking, but it's like, I, I know I'm projecting that. Sometimes when I know if I'm playing with somebody that 
they went to like blah 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 they went to this school and that school and i'm like does it feel like you're dumbing yourself down like playing with someone in that context uh, and if you i guess if you can take out the negative connotations like what i'm what i'm saying if that makes yeah, sense yeah i i i'm very much not in the classical world anymore haven't been for a long time i have many issues with the classical world and one of the main things that i take issue with is the constant butt sniffing and pecking order deduction people are doing when they meet each other am i better than you or am i worse than you and within 10 or 20 seconds they're trying to figure that out based on your your background your biography your your cv um yeah trying to figure out are you going to be sitting ahead of me in the orchestra or behind me and i'm going to treat you appropriate i'm going to treat you um uh um you know let me say it again the way that uh i'm going to treat you is going to be based on your skill and mm-hmm. and that is for me there parts of that are in rock music for sure but i would say that rock the average rock musician is much more equitable in their approach and, and talking to other people and much more willing to give you a shot and see what you're bringing to the table holistically before writing you off than the average classical musician so i guess in that regard it's so the, my thought that i didn't articulate that well isn't 100% completely a projection like that you feel like that that those layers do exist in like class a hundred percent and that's why I don't play in quartets or symphonies anymore I mean one is that I just the music isn't as compelling to me as playing rock or folk or indie but another piece of that is that I just don't like the vibe the community is just so stratified it is so who's better who's worse and if you have ever felt that from a classical player, you were not making it up. They were absolutely judging you for your skill or lack thereof in okay. terms of being able to use the word sforzando or use other Italian language to describe music, right? Which is yeah. ridiculous because maybe you didn't spend your time learning how to do that and you channeled your time into playing rock music without looking at the printed page. How many classical players have you played with or looked at and seen playing who were unable, just patently unable to play a, a four minute song with a band without looking at a sheet of music? That, that Yeah, I think it, it feels like uh, in the instances I can think of, you know, like if that feels like the case, like they can't like kind of like almost like trust themselves in a way yeah. that it's like, it's it's interesting because it's like they do have the training and so they should be able to kind of trust their instincts you yeah. know but i guess you haven't learned your instincts i've spent so much more time <laughs> over these like 20 years or whatever i've been playing an instrument and I, it's been all instinct yeah. you know like instinct and not really any theory yeah. you know um so i i guess you know it's like then i want to almost be equitable to them that I'm like I guess I understand like I don't have the theory but if you don't have kind of the instinct without the page then I guess I understand how you feel yeah I I recently Uh, sat in on my my wife's band they were playing a show a couple weeks ago and I had agreed to play one song with them and then I somehow got roped into playing four songs two of which I'd never heard before like it just was just playing along they told me the key and I just figured it out and that's the kind of thing that i think rock musicians know more how to do like we're gonna jam quote unquote we're just gonna like hang out on this key in this tempo and we're gonna figure it out and the average classical player doesn't know how to do that at all 
at all. I remember the first time I was asked to play in a band and we were just vamping on a minor. They said, can you do that? And I was like, I have no clue how to do that. Like they were just like, just choose three notes, just play a C and E. And they're like, yeah, but in what order and when? And they're like, just make it up, you know? And, and that was the beginning of me learning how to do that. But it was very scary to start with. And I definitely didn't know how, because you're not equipped as a classical player. You're not, you're not being equipped to play in that idiom because you never play classical music without the page. And I know plenty of people, classical players who hate memorizing music because they feel that it limits them from learning more music or playing more music. It's like, if I'm wasting all my time memorizing this stuff, then, then I'm not getting to the next symphony or quartet or whatever, oh, yeah. you know? And, and I yeah. think that that's just, the, it, it cuts into their chops, it, I guess. Yeah. Something. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely the wrong way to go about it. Like when I see a band with classical players on stage and they're reading their iPad or whatever, it takes me out of it completely because they're not, they're not connected to the music. They're just connected to printed things on a page and they're just doing that like a machine and they're not really conveying any emotion. Yeah. As I was preparing to talk to you, I learned some stuff about the record that I didn't know. Um, for example, um, the opening of uh, the opening drum loop from Diagonals is is borrowed from a song called The Vulture by, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Labby Sifra. And it's a fantastic song, and I really enjoyed it. And I just didn't know until reading about the, the record that it was borrowed from somewhere else, that they weren't just creating loops themselves, but they were borrowing ideas from other bands and then using those to create their own thing and obviously sampling is has been done a zillion times but i just didn't know they were doing that on this record i thought they were they'd recorded it themselves and then and then messed with it but it was really just lifted from a different Hmm. record is is sampling like a big thing on this record or mainly like that piece it's mainly that piece but it is the opening drum loop and then it really defines the feeling of the whole song so they really took that. I don't know what their creative process was in that particular song, but obviously mm-hmm. it influenced where they went with it. They didn't just tack it on the front and then and then they already had the song. They, I have to assume they took that. They were playing around with it and then they started jamming over it and then they figured out a part and then they created a song around it. That's what I assume happened. And, um, yeah. and I just I thought that was neat. And but I also just really like the original song, too. It kind of tells you the kind of music they were listening to. Um, one of their many influences, I'm sure, um, on on their own process. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I guess it's like I didn't even think about that concept in it. Like, I'm also trying to kind of like think about this time frame in context of like, let's say like portostatic, mm-hmm. you know, or um, this that kind of even like when you think about like like tricky or. Mm-hmm like what was kind of going on in the these different spheres of music that were kind of making people want to make music like this if there's even an answer to that like wh- where did this come from <laughs> yeah know? i mean i i'm i'm not exactly sure but you know you can argue that a lot of what influenced this particular brand of stereo lab comes from like bossa nova music from from kind of like easy listening from the 60s and 70s that um, you could argue that Stereo Lab, this at least this incarnation of it, is kind of like a <laughs> one of the one of the taglines that they have is like they're playing the name of their one of their first records is Space Age Bachelor Pad Music, and I think that that's a okay. good way to describe Stereo Lab as a band in general. It's like it's like if you were if you had a mid century modern apartment and you're living in the Jetsons time, 
you'd be listening to dots and loops, you know, like it's kind of like a retro futuristic feeling. And that wasn't the, they weren't the first band to do that and they weren't the last band to do it. But I feel like they, of the bands that have done it, I think that they have done it uh, the most successfully and the, and the way in which resonated the most with me um, by pairing older music with um, more modern ideas. Yeah, and I guess if we're looking at, you know, all music seems to be in cycles of like 20 or 30 years, and it, then it makes sense. It's like, it could be as much as, you know, like Herb Albert and Tijuana Brass, like if that was there 20 years before, then potentially that's the reference, you know. Oh, I absolutely. When I, when I think of that in a bachelor pad kind of I thing. I definitely think that they, Herb Albert has a huge influence on on what Stereolab is and does, like that kind of music, you know. Um uh, yeah, like any any sort of Bossa Nova record that was put out in the '60s, like you can you can draw a pretty bright line over to Stereo Lab from from that kind of like we're hanging out in our bell bottoms and our sunken living room floor in the '70s kind of feeling. Yeah, and I guess like if you if you think about like when the band started around like well '90, yeah. but a few years before with like what McCarthy was the band um, that he had, he had a band before yeah, I don't recall. Um, the kind of lead guy. Um, so it's yeah so i guess like if you're thinking of the 20 year cycle then right at 1990 and then defining your sound over the few years yeah it makes total sense but the the other thing kind of thinking about like you know i guess tiki music Mm -hmm. um i i'm like i don't know what happens when we get to a certain age i mean me like being over 30 where that stuff just starts ringing so like true to me. Yeah. You know, I'm like, is this, is this happened to everyone around our age or is this, are we in a trend? You know, like, you know, it's like, I thought that trend was like uh, years ago, but then I feel like it's like the Tiki thing is kind of coming back. And then it's like, you know, it's even like not Tiki music, but I'm like, oh, you know, like reggae sits with mm-hmm. me better mm-hmm. than it ever yeah. did. Or like, if I hear like a, a you know, like a reggaeton beat, mm-hmm. I'm like, I could listen to that for a while yeah. and it's never, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is just a product of age or. Yeah. I'm what. not sure. I, I will say that like a lot of music that my dad listened to resonates with me much more now than it did when I was a teen or even in my twenties. Like I'm a huge Steely Dan fan now. And that's that, mm-hmm. that was true going all the way back um, actually. But like, I feel like I've really internalized it. And I, I mean, I saw them live for the first time a few years ago and, like I'm a really big fan of their stuff also became because I became an audio engineer and the, the stuff they've recorded was immaculately done. Um, but like, I'm really big into the Doobie brothers now. And like, that's cheese ball. That was cheese ball to me 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But like, now it's like, I also saw them live and they were 70 years old on stage, killing it with the backing vocals. Like it was, it was awesome. Like my dad and I went and we had a great time and it was, it was a thing that I don't think we could have done together 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because we were on different wavelengths. But I don't know whether it's a trend or if it's just age or whatever, but I absolutely yeah. have pretty fully embraced the music that my parents listened to when they were in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, I, I know I've said it. Uh, I've said it on this podcast before, but I feel like I'm like I've gotten to a point where I'm like I'm struggling to remember what I hated. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, I find myself saying a lot like, oh, there's worse things. And then I'm like, but what is the worst thing? And then like trying to articulate and think about like, 
I'm like, what music do I hate again? I, I don't remember. Like, it's like as a kid, it was like, oh, techno is, you know, but then it's like I hear it and I'm like, no, I really like this. Like, I mean, this has been a journey as of, you know, like 10 years ago. But but then I'm like, oh, I don't hate that. Yeah. You know, like I did punk lie to me or is these <laughs> these kind of lanes that I created in my head that I thought other people were doing when, you know, I could have just. I could have, I could have just been, you know, uh, twenty years ago listening to Mingus. For yeah, fun, or, you know, but like, it goes back to what you said earlier about like being a punk kid, quote unquote. Where it goes yeah. beyond listening to the genre, it defines you as a person, right? Because the, the, people say that before the age of twenty-five, your brain isn't fully finished cooking yet; you're still defining your identity. And so it's beyond music; it goes into like the things that you wear and the people you hang out with and the kind of things that you like to do, um, and. At that time, maybe you look at emo or rock or metal or goth or whatever, and you say, well, that's outside of my identity, so I can't listen to this. It doesn't matter if it's good music. It's outside of what I am as a person, and so I can't let it in. But now, you know, you get older, those strictures start falling to the wayside, and you're more willing to listen to something on its face or without judging it by its by its look, by its genre, by its, its cruft, its identity, um, and listening to it more for its musical, um, ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I think in night in the year 1997, <laughs> I would not have wanted to listen to stereo lab. And I think I just wouldn't have let it in, you know, like it's, it's whether or not if somewhere in me told me it was good, it just wasn't allowed. Yeah. You know, it's, which is such a silly concept all these years later. But, but yes, you know, identity, uh, forming an identity can be a strange thing. Yeah. So a thing that I kind of found interesting, too, is just at a point they got dropped by Electra because they had poor sales. Um, so it's like thinking about, I guess I couldn't imagine, like, how many people were buying this record, you know, like these records in general. Like, do you have any sense of, like, how big this kind of scene was at the time? Or do you feel like you were just listening to it with some distance? I I really, I don't. Like, I know people who were part of the 90s indie scene, and I definitely worked with them and uh, and all of that. But I I did not participate. I was, you know, uh, I was too young at the time. Um, So I don't have a good sense of who exactly was listening to Stereolab and who wasn't and why they were or weren't. Um, but I have a sense of people more in like the, the, the more general 90s indie culture of which Stereolab was a piece, uh, perhaps a kind of more of an oddball piece, but a piece nonetheless. And, and, and those folks, you know, they generally, when I, when I speak about Stereolab to them, they say, yeah, of course, I love that band. I saw them live, yeah. I had their records, have their records, et cetera. Um, but in terms of like why they were selling or not selling, I, I really don't have a, a good sense of that. Yeah. They, and they toured kind of recently in the U S correct. Yeah. Um, they came through just this year. Uh, I was on tour, unfortunately myself when they came through Portland okay. uh, just a couple months ago. So I didn't get a chance to yeah. see them, uh, but I saw them last in 2019, 2019, I think. Yeah. And they their encore was a song called Blue Milk, which is like 20 minutes long, which is just so fantastic. That's exactly the kind of band they are. They're just going to cruise on a song for 20 minutes as an encore. And you could just see the people starting to trickle out like, 
I'm done here, you know, but they didn't care. They didn't <laughs> care because they were doing it for themselves. And it was the first time they toured in, in, in several years. Yeah, I feel like uh, what I remember about it, and it's kind of one of those things where, like I said, I wasn't completely tuned into it, but I just feel like I remember people being really excited, like, oh, Stereo Lab. And then I'm like, oh, I guess this is a band I should I should have listened to, you know, for that. Like, cause you, and you mentioned, like, John McIntyre, and I never made, I didn't make the Tortoise connection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's so interesting. I guess in a way, too, I almost, like, didn't, put a connection there i mean i saw the term post-rock being used to describe it but it's like i guess i attach tortoise to like almost like slant in a way it's like a it's like kind of like uh the next step after slant and then so i didn't connect it all together it, it's so interesting to kind of see these still i'm breaking down these kind of like walls where it's like this is this and this isn't this kind yeah. of thing that i thought i was like way over yeah. <laughs> at this point in my life so so, yeah, just kind of connecting it to Tortoise is like, oh. Yeah, right. when I first learned yeah. that John McIntyre was the through line from Tortoise to Sea and Cake to Stereo Lab, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I love all three of those bands, and I can feel a homogenousness across those three. And it's because, in a, in, in a small way, because um, you know, that he was involved and he touched all three of those. Yeah. So you were kind of mentioning... Um, like what dots and loops means mm-hmm. yeah so I, I i learned this also recently um obviously dots and loops is kind of like it, it it signifies maybe morse code or maybe looping and you hear at the beginning of the record you hear like bleeps and bloops uh yeah. but what i what i learned was um it was dots and loops were two separate animated films released in 1940 by a guy named noren mclaren and i watched them recently and he animated these himself and he also added like kind of you, you should go and check it out like uh, the the soundtrack to it is like bleeps and bloops and it sounds stunningly modern for 1940 it, the the animation is really interesting the music is really interesting and so far that you can call it music it's kind of like sound collage but you can mm-hmm. you can hear and look at something like that and be like oh even that a short animated clip you can see how that's a through line to stereo lab how like that influenced them enough so that they named their, in my opinion, magnum opus after these two animated films. Yeah. I think even like when I was in college, kind of, it's like I watched, I was in a Hitchcock film class and I watched like 39 steps mm-hmm. and that's a 1935 film. And it's, it's just like a thriller, but kind of realizing in that moment that uh, it's like, Oh, movies in the 30s were paced quickly yeah. you know it's like it's like i you think about like people are just kind of talking and then you know moving so they can get out of the way of the camera but it's like you know kind of like realizing that we've had this modern aesthetic and things much longer than we give credit to sometimes you know like we're thinking of a like you said a 1940s uh film feeling to date is it's like something that i'm still like trying to wrap my head around all these years later yeah. uh yeah i don't know i will definitely check yeah, that yeah, out yeah. <laughs> yeah so so i guess before i truly let you go so you had a new record or your debut record i guess under the completions mm-hmm. name um so i guess if you want to talk about the title of the record and kind of what led you to putting that out you know because i know you've worked with a bunch of people mm-hmm. and so 
was there like a conscious decision like I want to put out my own record? I, I've been a songwriter for many years and I've led projects before um, and, and completions has been a thing for several years, but had never put a record out a full, a full length record out under that moniker. And um, I've just spent a lot of time in my career playing in other people's projects, helping people do their thing and never prioritizing myself. And that's not true just in the musical realm, but it's also been true romantically with friends, work and career. Just I'm going to prioritize other people's things. I'm going to put myself secondary and going through therapy the last several years. I've really, I've really been able to internalize the need to prioritize myself and the need to accept help for the things that I do and not just always be giving away help. What does it mean to allow my wife to help me with something or my friend or my family member, or more importantly, most importantly to let myself help myself. And, and it's, I didn't start out writing a record that I was going to call. I needed help. I started out by writing a bunch of songs that kept coming back to this theme of like, Oh, help is necessary in life. And, and that just seemed to bleed into every song. So that's why I called it. I needed help um, is, is because it seems like every song is some sort of reminder or lesson to me of, yeah, we, we, we need help these days. Yeah. And when you were putting that together with the kind of, I needed help, kind of like thought maybe even being an afterthought did you ever feel like you were like oh i i need to i need to handle every single aspect of this like going into like writing your own record well, that was a part of it too was i could have sat down and arranged and mixed this whole thing literally by myself with with the perhaps small exception of drums not a great drummer but i could have <laughs> i could have stitched together drum loops or whatever and made it work but that was part of it too. Like to, to match the theme of the songs I had written, I said to myself, I've got a lot of talented friends, some of whom I've worked with on their projects. Now, will you please work with me on my project and lean on others to come up with stuff. And for me to go through the lesson and the exercise of, I wouldn't have done it that way necessarily, but that's how they chose to do it. And I'm going to let that be the way it is, as opposed to being a perfectionist and tweaking it endlessly. I named the project completions to remind myself to always finish things. And so I'm very much over the idea of trying to endlessly perfect something. And this was another exercise in that regard. Here are songs I'm going to have friends help me do and arrange. And this might not be like the absolute 10 out of 10 perfect thing. But in a lot of cases, it was either great or better than I would have come up with. And, and, and leaning into the beauty of it, not having, having not been overly um, criticized and, and have had the, tur the, the screws turned on it the way that I would have done it by myself. I think it, it resulted in a better product. Yeah. I, I mean, personally, I've been struggling with that a lot because I feel like a lot of my musical identity or identity as a whole is kind of like being tethered to, you know, something else. Like, you know, it's like... A, tethered to you know kind of being i guess being a bass player right? you know we'll we'll kind of do that to you but it's like who will you know it's like the idea of like who am i on my own yeah. you know like you know and i think that's like something i've worked through with like therapy as well it's like you know it's like you know i've been married for you know many years and it's but it's still like kind of knowing some sometimes it's as simple as like uh just giving an answer to like my spouse you know yeah. like kind of being able to articulate like what do I mm -hmm. want? It, it can be as simple as that, but sometimes it can be like, 
being comfortable to like tell someone like, oh, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I feel like I struggle with sometimes like it's like you want to kind of give a thing, but also feeling like if I do that, because I thought in my head, if I do that, then I become the guy that's just like a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> and then so trying to wrestle with yeah. that, like how do I ask for the things that I want still in a way that <laughs> feels like it makes it me? You know, it's, it's such a hard concept. I've struggled with that tremendously. And and I think the thing that's made it easier for me is to say that my feelings matter, that I matter. And if my feelings matter, then my feelings need to be declared. Because if I don't do that, then it means that my feelings don't matter. I spent a long time in my life saying that, yeah, I don't, I don't really matter. So I'm definitely willing to lose an argument or put my feelings away to defer to somebody else's. But definitely have realized also being married, I've been married a little over a year now. Um, if I don't share that, it makes things harder for both people uh, as opposed to trying, they're, they're trying to guess at each other's meaning. What does it mean to share transparently and then work, work through it? So I've, I've had the opportunity to practice that with friends, with family, but most notably with, with my wife, Brooke. And it's been, it's been a challenge, a real growth edge for me, but part of Part of the writing, the arranging of this record w was a therapeutic exercise to remind me that I need to share, I need to declare what I need and want, and then accept in the response. Because both of those things, the declaration and the acceptance of the response, both of those have felt like anathema to me for a really long time. But now it feels like the calculus has changed and I'm more willing to share who and what I am and not be thinking about what the consequences are. And I definitely wrote that off as being selfish or self-centered in the past. And now I realize it's not. It is. It is. It means being in a society is sharing who you are. Um, uh, I, I I believe that more strongly than ever. And yet I still feel like I have so much more progress to make and more transparently sharing with others who I really am. So before I truly, truly let you go, uh, where can people find you online? And thank you so much for your time. Of course. Yeah, the band is called Completions. Google Completions, it's you can find it. But Instagram is Completions Music. Uh, Facebook is Completions, and of course, it's on Spotify and all that. So, um, yeah, it's it's out where you where you consume your music. Welcome back. Thanks again to Sean for coming on the pod. Check out the newest Completions album wherever you stream music. Okay. Next time, we're talking with Jarrett and Nathan of Pairs about the band Hella, so more on that next week. Once again, check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Please follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at spinningoutpod. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment. Reviews always help. Thanks, as always, to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week.